Recovery On Air, the official podcast of Crossroads Addiction Rehabilitation. Candid discussion about addiction and recovery with the people who have lived it, along with input from experts on the journey from struggle to triumph. Laugh, cry, and be inspired. And now, your host for Recovery On Air, Donna Alexander. Welcome to Recovery On Air, the show in which we try to break the stigma about addiction by talking about it. I am your host, Donna Alexander. And I am your co-host, Amy King. And today in the studio, we have Christopher Thomas. He is from Sonoran Prevention Works, and there are uh, some initials after your name. And I know that there's (laughs) some other things that you do, so let's get that out of the way Right away, I know what the AA stands for, but what does CRSS stand for, and what does that mean? Uh, That means that I'm a a licensed, certified peer support specialist. So, uh, you know, I was trained uh, in an academy to provide peer support to participants in a variety of programs. Uh, And that just involves using my lived experience to make folks feel comfortable when they're accessing services, uh, because I've navigated a lot of those systems myself. Oh, so we're going to get into a story about recovery here in just a second. And so you also told me that you are a forensic peer specialist. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. That's just another uh, training and certificate that states that I've been trained to work with uh, families uh, that are attempting to navigate healthcare systems as well as recovery systems, uh, and also folks that are reentering from uh, criminal justice-involved individuals that are reentering society. Okay, so I'm going to just jump the tracks and say that you probably got into this line of work because you have a personal story. So obviously, if we're saying peer support specialist, that means you have a personal story. Sure, that's correct. So how about telling us a little bit about that? Well, sure. Uh, So, you know, I identify as a person in long-term recovery and a survivor of the war on drugs. Um, I started using substances at a very young age and, uh, for a very long time, substances were a solution for me. Uh, you know, I had a very difficult time with my self-esteem. Um, I had a very, uh, just difficult time being me, you know, and I engaged in a lot of behaviors that allowed me to step outside of myself and not be me. So that could involve lying or, or, you know, stealing things. Uh, but once I found substances, it was, uh, uh, it was a solution for me. And, you know, uh, I felt more uh, confident. Um, I felt like more comfortable just being inside my own skin. But as I'm sure many people who have been on the show and those sitting around the table can understand that, you know, what once was a solution for me uh, descended into chaotic, what I call chaotic substance use, where, you know, I started to experience a lot of negative consequences as a result of my use. Um, and you know, that gradually progressed and, you know, I, uh, I was using substances, uh, from about the time I was 12 or 13 until, uh, my mid thirties, uh, when I entered into recovery. And, uh, during that period of time, I went through, uh, a lot of, um, really rough stuff, you know, uh, you know, I should back up a little bit and just say that, you know, I came from a, you know, a healthy family background, you know, the 
two car, two cars, two point two kids, the dog, the house, you know, uh, vacations and stuff like that. My parents did the best that they could with what they had. Um, I didn't experience a lot of trauma uh, within my home, you know. Um, and maybe we'll talk about trauma and and its relationship to substance use later. But you know, uh, I didn't experience a lot of that. But I did experience a lot of trauma as a result of my participation. Um, you know, you know, police violence as well as you know violence uh, as a result of being a distributor of substances as well. <clears throat> uh, and just, uh, you know, I experienced a lot of things. I, I incurred my first felony convictions when I was 19. Wow. Um, you know, uh, you know, had a, a, a quite a few arrests, uh, during the, during the period of my using, uh, eventually landed in, uh, Arizona DOC, uh, where I was at ASPC Douglas, uh, down in Southern Arizona, uh, for a period of time. And, what happened to me, you know, almost died, pistol whippings, robberies, you know, the whole the whole nine yards, uh, abuse, both in, both inflicted and, you know, experienced. Um, you know, I, I definitely went through the gamut. Um, and, you know, I was you know, I started out with, you know, uh, a variety of substances, but, you know, uh, was really focused on psychedelics for a long time, uh, was a uh, fall down blackout drinker for about four years until, you know, that was a problem. And the solution to that for me was methamphetamine. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> and, and so, you know, and, and again, you know, I want to keep talking about this, the, the, the fact that substances meet important needs. Right. And that was the, that was the need that it met for me. And for a long time it worked, you know, but then eventually like, you know, what had freed me before became an even bigger burden than, than the alcohol use had been. Um, so, but yeah, for, so I was using methamphetamine very steadily for about 10 years. And the only periods of, uh, uh, abstinence that I had during that were when I was incarcerated. Um, and eventually, you know, uh, on January 12th of, uh, 2011, I was, you know, after a day of, of committing multiple felonies, I was, you know, stopped in a vehicle with no insurance. And, and, you know, the officer came up to the window and asked for my driver's license and registration. And I had a, you know, standing bench warrant out of, uh, Pima County. And, uh, I don't know what happened, but I had a fake name and a fake social security number that I'd used in the past. But in this instance, I just gave him, my real name and my real social security number. And, you know, my fiance at the time was in the car with me and she said, Oh no, you're going to go to prison. And, you know, I just looked at her and said, I'm, I'm just tired. And I just want to, I just want to get this taken care of. Right. I just want to kill my number. Like, you know, let's just, let's stop running. Let's get it taken care of. Right. And, uh, while I was incarcerated, uh, you know, but, well, let me back up. You always do this when you tell your recovery story. Let me back yes, up a little absolutely. bit. Uh, I, had a, uh, I had a daughter with somebody that I was dating for a while, but like uh, I was, uh, you know, very deep into my substance use disorder and it just, uh, I just, I denied the child that the child was mine and it just, it was going to get in the way of, of my selling and, and doing substances. So, uh, you know, I ran away from that. And that was one of the things that like, in the last couple of years of my using, you know, I, that thought would come into my mind that, you know, you have a daughter somewhere and I would just pick up the pipe or pick up the syringe and just hit it until I wouldn't think about that anymore. And again, substances met an important need, right? They allowed me to forget that trauma that I had from being absent from that situation and knowing the trauma I was probably causing my daughter by not being present. Right. But after a while, 
that stopped working. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, um, while I was in the, what I like to call the Pima County Hilton, <laughs> uh, you know, my daughter's mother came to see me and, wow. you know, she had every reason to hate my guts, uh, you know, could have come in there full of anger and spite and resentment, but, you know, she had been engaged in a program of recovery for a period of time. And so she just came in and asked me that important question. She said, when are you going to be sick and tired of being sick and tired? You know, and I was so tired at that point. I'd been living in resignation with my substance use disorder for a couple of years where I just had accepted the fact that, you know, I was probably going to die or I was going to go to prison for the rest of my life. And that was the way that was just the way it was going to be. Right. And what she did was gave me that. And as you'll find, I'm a member of a 12 step fellowship. She gave me that second step hope of that, like, you know, if this was possible for her, perhaps it would be possible for me. Right. So, uh, so I was sentenced to prison and when I went to prison, uh, I went to Alhambra, which if anybody's been in the Arizona DOC is like the sorting center. Like that's where you go to, where they figure out your designation and where you're going to go. And most people are there for three to seven days. I was there for 23 days. Oh, wow. And there's no commissary. There's no books. You know, I can do jail standing on my head if I've got something to read. You know, I'm an avid reader. So it was just, I had 23 days to reflect on uh, the fact that I didn't have any more plots and schemes, that no matter how much I tried to alter my quantum reality, I was not going to walk through the walls of that prison. And at that moment, I had a, uh, a spiritual change where, you know, I asked, I don't know what you are. I don't know what it is, but I just am not successful in living my life right now. And I need another way. And I would like you to come into my heart and guide me through that process. And guess what? The next day I got out oh, <laughs> and, went, wow. and, and went to a yard. Right. And when I went to that yard, I, I discovered that there were some 12 step meetings there and I went and, you know, number one, uh, I'm a, I'm a, a a strong anti-racist and I cannot stand the racist politics that are in prison. Uh, and so like the fact that I couldn't talk to people of color, the fact that like I couldn't sit with them really rubbed me the wrong way. Uh, and so one of the things that I loved about the 12 step fellowship and we talk about unity as being one of our principles is that, you know, that politics in that room did not exist. Right. right. Like, you know, people could come together because we had one goal and that was to recover. But, you know, when I went to those meetings, um, I felt immediately at home. Uh, and I started, and I kept going back. Right. And, uh, the, probably one of the most pivotal moments of my recovery was, uh, I'm a good talker. I think as you'll find, uh, it's <laughs> one of my, one of my assets that I've identified over the years. And, uh, I was sharing about how, you know, when I got out, things were going to be different. I was going to be with my, my daughter's mom and, you know, I was going to be a part of my daughter's life. And like, I was spiritually and emotionally and financially bankrupt. And like, you know, it was going to be different. And this, um, individual who would later become my sponsor, uh, shut me down yep. and said, and there's a lot of crosstalk in, in prison, uh, 12 step fellowship meetings and said to me, uh, this was all a reality. Like you sound really good, mm -hmm. but this was all a reality when you were out there using, right? So what's going to be different this time? Like what happened? How, what's the longest you've stayed abstinent when you've gotten out of jail? You know? And I thought about it and I was about mm, maybe eight or nine hours. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so 
I've been a yes man my whole life, right? Like I, I would hang out with people that were working on cars and they'd be like, yeah, it's got a V6, blah, 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 blah. I have no idea what that means, but I'd just sit there and nod my head like, oh yeah, I had one of these once. Oh yeah, I dismantled an engine. You know what I mean? Like I never wanted to look bad, right? I never wanted to be humble and admit that I didn't know something. And uh, what I like to say is that my higher power shut my mouth and uh, put the words in it that, you know, the, the, this individual told me if, if the only thing that's going to be different is if you work some steps before you get out of here. So mm-hmm. I suggest that you work steps one through four, at least before you get out of here. And instead of saying, oh, I know, I know, I know how to do, I've already worked them. I read them on the wall, right? I know how I've already done this. Uh, I shut my mouth and I sat quiet for a second. And then I said, I don't know how to do that. Can you show me how? And I think that that was one of the most important uh, things that I've uttered in my recovery because, you know, when I was out there using, I had lots of sponsors, right? You know, people who taught me how to cut dope, cook dope, sell dope, <laughs> do dope, shoot dope. You know what I mean? And, and, and I didn't know how to live uh, without substances and without chaotic substance use in my life. So, you know, I really needed a sponsor that would walk me through the steps and show me uh, a different way to live. <laughs> and I got another big shot of Second Step Hope. Uh, when I saw some of the individuals that had work steps in the program who were incarcerated, who were, you know, walking around the yard with a certain amount of levity, you know, and a certain amount of freedom uh, that I wasn't seeing in other other prisoners, you know. And when I asked them how that was, you know, they explained to me that, you know, they had worked, you know, the steps. And, and so I started to work steps. Um, Worked them with my sponsor, and as a result, I, I like to say I had a spiritual awakening. And you know, I uh, you know I decided, um, you know, let me let me say this that like you know substances I felt for a long time brought me closer to my higher power, and I and I and I view those experiences as completely legitimate. Like they were experiences that I had. I don't view them as oh it was just the drugs. Like you know I think that those things really happened. But you know the more and more I used, the further and further that got away from me, right? And so when I worked my third step, I had this uh, spiritual uh, awakening, if you will, where, and it's kind of a funny story. I, I, I worked the step. I, you know, uh, said some words with my sponsor and then I walked outside and the sun was setting in Douglas and, uh, and you know, uh, I said the third step prayer again. And then, uh, there's a blimp, a drug interdiction blimp that everybody calls God. (laughs) And, And it was like in the setting sun. And so I'm sitting there looking at this blimp that they call God. And I had this spiritual awakening and a small, quiet voice said to me, Uh, this is the path. This is what you need to do. Just keep doing this and things are going to be okay. You know? And so I kept doing that. And one of the most important things I want to share to this story is, um, is that when I got out, um, you know, we talk a lot about rock bottoms, you know, and I might diverge from the, the common narrative here, but I don't really believe that I experienced a rock bottom. You know, I had a lot of consequences and a lot of negative things happened to me as a result of my using. But when I got out of prison, I got an immense amount of support from my family, from my friends, uh, and from the community uh, that enabled me and created a safe space for me to recover in. You know, so sometimes we, you know, we we say when we're dealing with substance use disorder that, oh, these people have to lose everything before they're going to they're gonna change. And that doesn't have to be the case. There are much easier bottoms for people to hit. But what folks really need 
to recover, in my op- humble opinion, uh, from uh, substance use disorder is, is an immense amount of support, an immense amount of love and compassion. And that was really the case with me. I paroled to my aunt's house. Uh, she drove me. Uh, if you want to hear another funny story, I, I was sitting at a restaurant with them. I'm just off the prison bus. They're buying me lunch, and, and, uh, and they're laying it out to me like, you know, you have a daughter that we never knew about. Like you're, you, you know, there's, there's been all these consequences, like, you know, things need to be different. I mean, they just gave me the truth. Right. And I could barely handle it. And, uh, and I walked outside to smoke a cigarette and I looked across the street and there was a bar across the street. And I said, you know what? I could just screw this, walk over there, get a couple cocktails, call my fiance. I'll be high within an hour, you know, and, and, and it'll be good. And just again, something intervened and I instead I put the cigarette out walked inside and said you know what I really need to get to a meeting like now and they said we're so glad you said that so we already picked out your home group it meets uh, (laughs) uh, you know it meets every night in Chandler and you know it meets at seven o'clock we're going to drive you to meetings every night we're going to take you to a meeting tonight we got you covered right and that's that support that I'm talking about right like when so many people get out who are not privileged like I am and when I'm saying privileged that Uh, I'm a beneficiary of intergenerational wealth. I'm a white cisgendered male. You know, things are much easier for me in this society to navigate. And I had that support, you know, of my family that made the process of recovery much easier. You know, and I, you know, the, the usual story, you know, I worked. I continued to work steps. I continued to have a sponsor. I continued to have a home group. Shout out to It's Time in Chandler, Arizona, which really supported me for a long time. Um, And, you know, my mother returned to the country and I moved in with her and, you know, I got a job and, you know, my my first job was as a result of connections from my family. Again, I just want to keep hitting on this. I had lots and lots of support. Right. And before I could even get to recovery, I was kept alive through harm reduction. You know, I, I accessed syringe service programs. Um, I accessed a lot of education and information about my substance use so that I could keep me and my friends safe. You know, uh, so, you know, shout out to harm reduction for keeping me alive uh, to the point that I could enter into recovery. Was that before you went to prison? That was before I went to prison. Yes, I was involved in harm reduction uh, when I was in college. Uh, We attempted to start a syringe service program in the town of Kalamazoo, Michigan, where I lived. Uh, We were unsuccessful at that time. They, They do now have one. Shout out to harm reduction, Michigan. But. Uh, you know, I, and, and just, you know, harm reduction is such a daily practice and just that like educating myself around HIV, educating myself around hepatitis C, you know, uh, accessing the syringe service program in Tucson, Arizona, uh, which was called life point, uh, which is one of the longest running syringe service programs in Arizona. Uh, and, you know, was able to go there and get sterile syringes and get tested for hepatitis C and get safe use supplies. You know, this was before we had layperson naloxone, but you know, that enabled me to keep myself and, and the people that I was using with safe, you know, and, uh, you know, a lot of people like to say that people who use drugs don't care about their community or they don't care about the people that they're using with. And, and that's really not true. You know, we, we definitely cared for each other and, and looked out for each other. So, um, but all I, you know, I, I, I've worked the steps. I've, uh, you know, I did have one relapse, um, at about six months. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, but I just recently celebrated, uh, so I had to change my clean date. So my clean date is now July 12th, uh, 2011, but I, um, 
I recently celebrated 10 years uh, in recovery, uh, and it's been a fantastic ride. And, and I guess the, the last thing I always like to finish with is my daughter, right? Yeah. So, uh, so her family was very hesitant to let me be a part of her life. And I was very resentful of that. Like, why don't they trust me? It's been nine months, you know, it's the, 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 the usual routine. Right. And, uh, uh, but they gave me a lot of space to recover in, you know, they didn't just say, okay, you're going to be, you know, full-time dad now, you know, cause I was incapable of doing that at that time. But slowly over time, you know, I, I went down every weekend and then, you know, I, I spent every Sunday with her for, you know, many years and, you know, slowly became a financial supporter of her. Um, And so I'm very grateful to them, excuse me, that they gave me the time uh, so that I could lay a foundation of recovery so that I could be a successful parent. And, you know, the last year, and and let me just say that, like, you know, uh, my substance use disorder did a, a created a lot of wreckage in regards to my emotions. Right. And so it was very difficult for me to be, uh, and I wasn't there for the first three and a half years. It was very difficult for me to, you know, uh, open my heart to my daughter. And that's just the honest truth that like for a long time I had to fake it to make it, you Mm -hmm. know, and I just, I I knew that this was the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, I remember one of the first times I hung out with her by myself, my spot, I called my sponsor and I said, she's in the other room. I don't know what to do, you know? And, uh, and, and my sponsor's like, Oh, Mr. Tough guy, like drug dealer, professional drug doer. And now you're like really scared of this kid that's in the other room. And I said, yeah, I don't know what to do. And he said, this is the deal. They don't come with instruction manuals make sure you feed her and make sure she doesn't die. And that'll be a great start. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And and so that's what I started with, you know, make sure she doesn't die, make sure you feed her. Right. And, uh, but you know, (laughs) over time my heart, uh, opened up and, you know, I developed a relationship with my daughter and, you know, unfortunately her mother, uh, has really struggled over the years. And so like, you know, I'm now, I now have full custody of, oh, of her wow. and, uh, and you know, that's, that's been a learning process. So I, I want to tell you a quick story. I, I went to, uh, I'm a huge fish fan. And so I, I've been, done a lot of fish tour over the years and, uh, you know, they play a different set every night. So we go and check them out and, and, uh, I have a group of friends in recovery that we go to these shows together and they have meetings at set break and it's, it's a really fun time, but it's not easy. You know, like, you know, uh, the thoughts of using are, are still there. And, uh, you know, I, I was having a particular thought of using uh, while I was at this show on Halloween night. And I just uh, I used that coping mechanism, right? The, the playing the tape through. And, yeah. you know, what the tape told me when I played it through was that there were various points during my using when I had everything. Uh, that you could possibly want, right? I had a, a partner, I had piles of dope in every room, I had, you know, <laughs> power, money, you know, all this stuff, and I was still miserable, right? Because uh, nothing was going to meet the need that I had, right? And I played the tape through and said, you know what, if I end up using tonight, it's never going to be enough, right? Nope. And And for me, you know, I'm a harm reductionist. I see people in recovery who engage in limited substance use and they do okay, you know? Uh, but for me, I have to weigh the risk, right? And my track record for me is that one is never enough, right? One is too many and a thousand is never enough for me. Um, and so, you know, somebody has got to be present for my daughter right now. And that person has to be me. So for me to take that risk right now, uh, for me, and I can only speak for me, uh, is not worth it. 
right? You know, because it could be very unsustainable and that's going to put her in a bad position. So anyway, I play the tape through and I say, okay, I'm, I'm not going to use just for today. Right. So maybe tomorrow's a different day, you know, we'll see about tomorrow, but today (laughs) I'm not going to use, I'm going to go to this concert. I'm going to have a good time. And midway through the first set, I get a text from my daughter and she says, uh, you know, I'm really struggling right now. I need somebody to talk to, you know, and I just want you to put that in your head, visualize that, right? Like, I'm high as hell and I get that text, you know what I mean? And I've got to go, it's going to be all bad. Right. And so I was really grateful that it was just, you know, kind of a, a, uh, whatever you want to call it, a sign from the universe, a God shot, whatever that, you know, I had made the right decision. And, you know, so I was able to step outside of the concert and have a conversation with my daughter. And, you know, I wasn't able to solve her problem, but at least I was there on the other end of the phone to be present for Mm -hmm. her, you know? And so, and the next day I woke up, you know, and still, you know, had, uh, my recovery time and, you know, didn't have any regrets and was, was able to come home, you know what I mean? And, and, and be good. So, uh, yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's a bit about me. That is an amazing story about using the tools that we get to have. Cause I think that oftentimes we forget those. And as the further we get along in our recovery, you know, when I hear people say, I got this, it always just sends a shiver down my back. Sure. You know, because I was one of those, and Amy also a little bit too, that we didn't really necessarily lose everything. Like, you know, I had an intervention where my ex-husband took my kids, the car, and he thought all the money, but I still had some, of course, because I'm (laughs) like that, you know. But um, I still had the house. I still had the car. I just didn't have it at the moment. Yeah. You know, um, and I also had that family support. I stayed with my younger sister up in Montana for a year, Mm. you know, to try to get my feet underneath me before I came here. And Amy had such support from her parents, but (laughs) tell that little bit of a story. Limited support. It was all on um, the terms of what I was willing to do. And my father wasn't willing to do anything for me. So it took me going into Crossroads and doing what I needed to do there and staying sober and having to actually do things for myself for once and not having that safety net there to pick me up and, hey, can you bring me this? When I would ask, hey, can you bring me this, which was like some money for laundry, some paper, some pens, and you know that type of thing. How much is laundry? He asked. He gave me exactly what it would cost to do one load of laundry. <laughs> He brought me 10 pieces of paper and a pencil that was about three inches long (laughs) and told me, from now on, you need to learn how to get this. Do whatever you need to do. Stay sober. Don't stay sober. But don't call me if you don't. Mm -hmm. And it took a long time for me to get that family relationship back and for them to trust me again. And it wasn't an overnight thing. It wasn't just a year. I mean, it was numerous years. It probably took close to, what, five years before my father was... Very, willing to do hardly anything for me. Right. And um, by the grace of God, you know, I had the support, my family, which was Crossroads at the time, and still my family. But when I came to Crossroads, that was my family, it was Donna and the women there helping me and supporting me. Oh, so That's great. You know, just awesome. So talk a little bit, Christopher, about this, because I wrote this down while you were talking. Mm-hmm. So somewhere along this, whatever you said triggered this, mm-hmm. that after we get the substances out of our bodies... There we are. Yeah. But all those behaviors, I think, as you were talking about, even before you started using drugs, the lying and all of that kind of stuff. Talk a little bit about that so that people realize that when they do stop using, everything's not sunshine and unicorns all the time. Oh, sure. I mean, 
Yeah. You know, we have to look at us then in the mirror, and that is not always easy, and it's not always pretty. Sure, yeah. You know, when, you know, the substances were gone, you know, I was really bereft of uh, a lot of coping mechanisms that I needed. There was a lot of trauma there uh, that uh, needed to be addressed. And, you know, really has, I mean, some of it was addressed through working the steps and being a part of a supportive fellowship and my family and stuff. But, you know, uh, I recently just entered into therapy for the first time, you know, oh, wow. and I'm really starting to get down to the, you know, you know, the, the reality is some of the things that I did, some of the things that I experienced, you know, and one of the things that I learned um, was that number one, uh, post-acute withdrawal sy- syndrome is a thing, right? Yes. A- and, you know, people told me. Uh, it could take two and a half years for your brain to feel normal again. And I'd be like, well, I'm actually feeling emotions these days. I'm feeling emotions very clearly. I feel sad and angry quite a bit and I feel it really intensely, you know, but there wasn't like a lot of definition to my emotion. And I just remember sitting in the shower one day crying my eyes out. And then I had this realization, this moment of acceptance where I was like, you know what? I'm chemically depressed, you know, yeah. like my brain is not, uh, functioning like it did. I, you know, I, I did a lot of stuff to my brain and yeah. like, that's okay. It's okay for me to be like where I'm at right now. And it just gave me a lot of acceptance and allowed me to like move through things. And then just a lot of gratitude that I was able to feel in the first place, because right. at the end of my using, it was either high, not high, uh, you know, euphorically happy or, you know, miserable, violently angry yeah. and miserable. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, recovery has really given me this like, you know, mosaic or rainbow of emotions. You know what I mean? To, to, to draw from these days, <laughs> some, for, oh some would say gosh. that's better and some t- would say it's worse, but you know, uh, <laughs> you know, I really needed to learn, you know, how to live again. And, you know, for folks that are out there struggling, like, you know, if you're in early recovery or, you know, you're still actively using, you know, uh, you're worth something and you are a human being with rights and dignity. And, Absolutely. you know, just that on the bottom line, I want to say that, but, but also like, you know, we have to accept the fact that a lot of, um, what we determine the 12 step fellowships as character defects are really survival mechanisms when we're faced with the reality of the streets. Right. And so, you know, uh, I don't, I don't know. I just tell my sponsees, I'm like, cut yourself a break, man. You know what I mean? Like this is, you know, uh, you're, you're in early recovery. These things are happening. These behaviors don't change overnight. You know, like what you can do is the best that you can do today, you know, and understand that like a lot of these things that you're doing are assets when viewed in another light. You know what I mean? Uh, my sponsor used to say that, uh, character defects are assets that are just completely blown out of proportion by, you know, our survival mechanism or whatever, like the lie, you know, why do we lie? You know, a lot of times on the street, we lie to survive, you know, and, and once that behavior is ingrained, you know what I mean? It can be difficult to unlearn, you know, but once we, uh, you know, have that support and uh, have that ability and that time to heal, you know, that's when we can start to work on that stuff and realize, you know, what our assets are and what our faults are, you know. And I think some of those character defects, my sponsor used to say character defects are character assets gone awry. Yes. Yeah. And yes. I think that that part of that is like, say, you use the hustle to hustle dope or, or to sure. get dope or whatever. And then when you're done, you can use that mm-hmm. to be a really good employee sure. and mm-hmm. a really good sponsor. Mm-hmm. And I think that we miss that. And so we automatically want to get rid of all of that stuff because we have that fear base of, sure. oh, if I don't, then I'm going to be in big trouble here. Right, right. <laughs> so, yeah. 
So let's talk a little bit about your work okay. with Snoring Prevention Works. Now, Amy can out herself about why she's so interested in it. So I uh, have two kids that both of them were addicted to heroin, IV drug users. And um, for the longest time, I had no idea as to what to do with them, you know, how to help them, how to get them to a point of recovery. And, um, you know, like with being out on the streets, being afraid of them picking up and, you know, contracting Hep C, mm-hmm. HIV, you know, and the dangers of that. And so going forward, just being able to share some of the knowledge that you guys do mm-hmm. um, with other addicts mm-hmm. and pass on that information would be fantastic to just to know a little bit more about it. And, you know, I know that there's nothing that we can do to make somebody get sober. Mm-hmm. But if we do have some ideas or some things that could help them along the way, be really interested to learn about that and hear more about that. Sure. So, I I mean, it ties, you know, tightly into my recovery story. We talk about service being so important, you know, helping others to get outside of ourselves. What a great recovery tool. You know, when I get caught up in my head. Uh, sometimes I just go over to a friend's house and do their dishes. You know what I mean? And it, uh, you, you know, can come really, to my house and yeah. make sure he has both our addresses. Right. I have some yard work. For his <laughs> so, so service was really important and I was of service to my fellowship, but then, you know, I really, you know, we talk about lost dreams awaken, you know, things like that. And, uh, you know, I had, I had always been a harm reductionist at heart, uh, for years. And, uh, and so I started to get back into harm reduction and I found a volunteer opportunity in, uh, Tucson, Arizona, where I live to volunteer at a syringe service program that was run at the Southern uh, Arizona AIDS Foundation. And, you know, I volunteered there for six months and it was, I was very uh, gratified by the work that I was doing. Um, I loved uh, talking to people uh, that would come in to access the services and just the most common thing that I would hear from them is that, you know, just thank you for caring about us and, this is the first time I've been treated like a human being all right. day today, wow. you know? And so it was very gratifying work. And, uh, you know, Danny Trejo, I don't know. He, Love always, him. he always, he always talks about how like all the best things in his life have always happened as a result of service. Right. And yes. so, you know, by, by doing that volunteer opportunity, they said, Hey, we really think that you're good at this work and we have a job opportunity. Would you like to take that? And so I moved from the restaurant business into uh, working in behavioral health through a position there where I did HIV and hepatitis C testing. I would go into treatment centers and do, uh, uh, this she- called the shield program, which is self-help and eliminating life threatening diseases, where we teach people how to sterilize syringes, get tested for HIV, hepatitis C, safe sex practices, things like that. Uh, it was just very gratifying work. And then, um, in 2017, Sonoran Prevention Works was formed, and a, and a good friend of mine uh, started working for them as an overdose prevention coordinator. And where I was working at Southern Arizona AIDS Foundation, we were distributing naloxone for mm-hmm. Sonoran Prevention Works. So eventually, uh, after about a year, uh, I was offered a position at Sonoran Prevention Works, and uh, and I've just been very, very happy and gratified to, to do the work that we do. Uh, it's very hard work. Uh, you know, it's uh, there's a, a lot of uh, you know the overdose crisis is is a a stark reality that i live with every day and we work our best 
passed uh, to reduce uh, overdose deaths nationwide and, and particularly in the state of Arizona. So, you know, our mission is, is that we engage in participant driven advocacy, education and outreach. And uh, we are the largest uh, harm reduction organization in Arizona. We have offices in Prescott, Phoenix, and Tucson. And we have outreach workers in Coconino County, j- just about every county in Arizona. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we, we do that through a variety of programs. We do that work. Uh, per- participant-driven advocacy, what I want to say about that is that uh, we believe uh, that, you know, people who use drugs are experts on their own care. They know what they need, right? Absolutely. So we get a couple letters behind our name, you know, our, refl- our fixing <laughs> reflex k- k- kicks in and we're like, we know what's best for you. You just have to do this, right? And in reality, uh, we believe that, like, you know, participants have to help craft the programming that they're participating in because they understand how they're best going to benefit from that programming. So we have an overdose education and naloxone distribution program, which uh, I've been a part of. I'm an overdose prevention coordinator for Southern Arizona. And uh, what we do is we distribute naloxone statewide. We provide overdose prevention training. And then we work with organizations like Crossroads who help us distribute uh, this life-saving overdose reversal medication Mm -hmm. uh, to participants and, uh, you know, offer technical assistance to agencies that want to start that. And uh, I'm happy to say that, you know, uh, you know, we go to wherever we can find people who use drugs in their families and try to get naloxone and education into their hands. You know, we really center people who use drugs in our families and all of our programming. And I'm, I'm happy to say that since uh, 2017 to this last October, uh, our program has distributed 598,663 doses of naloxone, nice. which has resulted in 17,000, over 17,000 reported overdose reversals. That's and we know that that number is very low, right? Yes. But that's 17,000 plus people that have a chance at another day to mm-hmm. live their life, no matter whether they're going to enter into recovery or not, no matter whether they're it's important to somebody, right? They are human beings and they don't deserve to die from a death that is one. 100% preventable. Right. right? Um, we also have a harm reduction outreach worker program, which the defining characteristic of this program is that abstinence is not a requirement, right? So we really work on those social determinants of health. If a person wants to enter into recovery, we're happy to help them with that, but we never, it's never forced upon them. We never say you have to stop using substances. We just engage them and ask them, what is it that you need that we can provide? And so uh, we have all of our harm reduction outreach workers are peer support specialists certified. Uh, They can help people navigate healthcare systems, uh, recovery systems, get people on medication assisted treatment that drive people to appointments. We do uh, robust HIV and hepatitis C testing as well as navigation to care. Uh, One of the big things that we do is we provide vital documents to individuals. So to navigate a system, right, you got to have an ID. Right. Yeah, right. And sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, if you've ever experienced that when you've been out on the street, you lose your ID. Oh, man, so many do- doors closed to you. Right. So what our uh, harm reduction outreach workers will do is they'll you know, uh, they can pay for a person's ID. They can drive them to the DMV to get it. We can reach out to state agencies to get uh birth certificates, social security cards, right, for folks, um, help folks get food assistance. Um, we've thrown baby showers uh, oh, for, wow. for wow. folks, for people who use drugs who are pregnant and parenting. Um, you know, we just uh, you know go to court dates with folks. So 
you know, getting back to this rock bottom thing, right? For so long, it's been the opinion that, you know, the best way to treat substance use disorder is punitive, right? Like, you know, we're going right. to, we're going to take away all of your supports in the hopes <laughs> that you'll get better. Right. And it does, it goes against, it's not evidence-based, right? It doesn't, it doesn't have any evidence behind it. Right. Because when you take away a person's housing, a person's access to food, their safety, their connection, right? Those are the things that they are seeking out to deal with, right? They're not seeking out any of the higher level brain or behavior changes that we can engage in, right? Like, you know, maybe addressing my substance use, right? So we come from this model of, you know, housing first, food first, support first, Mm -hmm. right? Because we feel that when people have that support, right, we know that they can make incremental improvements in their health outcomes, right? So what we would argue at Sonoran Prevention Works is that anybody that's accessing a syringe service program, whether they're using substances or not, is engaged in treatment. Why? Because they are taking an incremental step to protect themselves from contracting HIV or hepatitis C. They are taking an incremental step to improve their health outcomes. And that's why every time they come into our services, we say, good job. We're glad to see you here today. Right. And we support any positive change. That's one of the biggest tenets of harm reduction is that uh, if a person I'll give you, it's just best to use an example. So if somebody comes in and they have a lot of abscesses from injecting and they say, man, I'm really my veins are blown out. I I really don't want to inject. You know, it's causing a lot of problems. And we can say, well, let's talk about some different routes of administration. Right. Uh, That maybe you can give your arms a rest. And they come in and they tell us the next week, oh, I only injected twice last week. That is a victory. Right. That is a positive change in the right direction. Right. And you can almost look at it in the other language of the 12 step. Right. Like self-esteem is built by esteemable actions. Right. So like, you know, once people start to see that they are experiencing improvements in their health outcomes, the more likely they are to improve those uh, to keep taking steps to improve those outcomes. Right. And we see uh, we see so many, uh, you know, success stories. And, and, you know, the evidence is there. Right. Uh, Uh, Sonoran Prevention Works, you know, uh, you know, is looking into operating syringe service programs here in the state since we they were legalized last year uh, or actually this this past October 1st, they were legalized. Um, And we know that folks who access a syringe service program are five times more likely to enter into treatment and they're three times more likely to stop injecting. Right. And you think about it this way. Right. When we provide non stigmatizing services to folks, who are they going to turn to when they look to improve their health outcomes by perhaps getting on medication assisted treatment or to enter into a recovery program, right? They're going to come to those people that have been supportive, that have recognized their dignity and respect them as a human being. That's who they're going to come to, yeah, to, to, passing to, judgment to and- engage in services. But you know, a lot of people don't agree with harm reduction, yeah. right? But at the bottom line, harm reduction is about prevention, right? The mm-hmm. prevention disease prevention, the prevention of the harmful effects that are related to substance use. Harm reduction neither promotes nor condemns substance use. We just understand that it's a reality and it's been a reality since time immemorial, right? And we just want to prevent any of the negative consequences that it's unnecessary for a person to experience as a result of their substance use. You know, our boss always says about this and about methadone too. He says that the whole purpose of this is to keep somebody alive long enough mm-hmm. to be able to help them get into treatment mm-hmm. if that's what they want to do. Sure. So and, and, and you know, some people might not ever 
entering right. the treatment, mm-hmm. right? You know, we just have to understand. Or and, recovery, and, yeah. Yeah, and substances meet important needs. You know what right. I mean? So sometimes people will just continue to use those. Does that mean they deserve to die? Does it mean that they don't deserve to have a certain quality of life? We would say absolutely not. You know, we, that those people are inherently uh, uh, valuable as a human being, and we just want to, you know, support them, even if that's not going to be uh, the case that they don't. But if they choose to, boy, we're there to offer all those recovery supports that a person might yeah. need. And we, we uh, overwhelmingly support medication-assisted treatment. You know, we know that it's the gold standard for treating opioid use disorder. And just think about how stabilizing it is for so many people when you're not putting yourself at risk of police violence, you're not putting yourself at risk of violence in the street. And in this day of age with, you know, fentanyl being in so many substances, uh, you know, it, you, it's a, you know what you're getting. You know what I mean? And so that's true. That's true. So if the listeners are out there and you guys need help, reach out to Crossroads. We will help you. 602-263-5242 or go to our website for a little bit more explanation about what we do at Crossroads. And that is the org. And Christopher, what is a place, a website and stuff they can get a hold of you guys for anything? Uh, Just type in SPWAZ into your browser and it'll take you right to our website and you can, uh, or you can email us at info spwaz.org and we'd be happy to help to connect you with naloxone help to connect you with services and you know for any treatment providers out there if uh, you have some uh, candidates for our harm reduction outreach worker program we're happy to take those you can just reach out to the website or reach out to that that email and uh, we'll be happy to begin to work with your participants that's awesome and i have a story for you about some of the stuff that you gave us one of the little bags that you give out for the prevention and the overdose Naloxone? Yes, naloxone. (laughs) So um, we had a worker, an employee, and she had a daughter that was going to go to college. And she said, you know what? I think that you need to take one of these kits with you. And so she was, you know, she waffled at it at first. And she said, okay. So she took it. And before she even left Phoenix, she was going to NAU. Before she left Phoenix, she was with her boyfriend at an IHOP went into the bathroom and there was a lady down on the floor there. Oh wow. And she had read she had watched your guys's little YouTube video that you have about how you just how you do it, how you inject it, blah sure. blah. So she went about doing that. Somebody called nine one one and she saved that girl's life. Wow. wow. And you know that I know that you guys hear those stories all the time mm-hmm. from the work that you do. Yes. You know, and it's it's just amazing stuff. And we try to give those kits to everybody who is leaving Crossroads, you know, the thing that I think that needs to be known out there, too, and why I tell you that story is that people oftentimes think we're trying to say at Crossroads when we're giving them the kit that, oh, my gosh, you think I'm going to relapse? No, we are not saying that. But if you go to like I went to the grocery store the other day, the bathroom is now locked Mm. and it's because they had an overdose in their bathroom. Sure. And so I think that overdose is happening anywhere, anytime, anybody. And so we're not giving you the kit because we think you're going to go get high. Sure. We're giving you the kit because you might have an opportunity to save somebody's life. For sure. Straight up. Yeah. I mean, and, and stuff that's, always happens. And that's fantastic. And, you know, what we like to say is that uh, the only thing that naloxone enables is breathing. Right. When you're giving that kit to somebody, whether they think, you know, oh, I'm, I'm not going to relapse. I don't need this. Like, you know, uh, you never know. It's a just for today thing. Right. You know, right. you're working on today and we just want you to have this just in case because you know why? Because we love you. We care about you and we value you as a human being. And we want to see you again tomorrow. 
you know, right. and we don't want you to die. Absolutely. So, so thank you so much. And I just want to say that, you know, SPW could not do our work without our amazing partners in prevention and treatment. And so we so appreciate you for all of your help with our work. Well, and we appreciate you guys for always being there for us, too. I need to get together with my person and get some more kits because we are out. <laughs> okay. So, And I know that you guys had some problems there for a little while, right? Is that sure? There's there's been a shortage uh, of naloxone, the injectable uh, intramuscular naloxone, uh, Pfizer, uh, which was the uh, company that was producing it had a very common manufacturing error it has nothing to do with the with the vaccine the COVID-19 vaccine or anything like that very common error but it, it greatly limited the supply of the naloxone that was available to us as a small nonprofit agency right there the Narcan was still available but mm-hmm. it's very expensive right yes, it and is. so it's, it's outside of the scope of our program uh, to, to purchase some of it um, so but we are I, mean, I am happy to say that uh, things are starting to turn the corner, but at this moment, we are still uh, prioritizing people who use drugs and their families to receive our kits. But uh, we're looking forward to in the new year that changing, and so we'll we'll definitely be able to take care of our community partners. Right, excellent because we need to have that because it's <laughs> like an important part of our discharge process <laughs> yeah. to make sure that those guys have an opportunity. Sure, for not just themselves but family members. So right, fantastic. So we appreciate you so much being here and sharing your experience, strength, and hope with us. It's been an amazing visit. It was really great to have you here. Oh, thank you so much, Donna. It was a pleasure. And thank thank you you so much. It's been awesome. And we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to Recovery On Air, the official podcast of Crossroads Addiction Rehabilitation with your host, Donna Alexander. Join us next time as we continue our candid discussions about addiction and recovery. Listen 24-7 anytime to this or any of our shows online at StarWorldWideNetworks.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.